Hello and welcome to the Limerick Post Podcasts. We are Limerick. I'm your host, Keen Reinhardt. Join me each week as we get to know the people of Limerick who are making the city and county what it is today. You can keep up to date with all Limerick news, sport and entertainment by following the hashtag Keeping Limerick Posted across all our social media channels or visiting limerickpost.ie. Welcome to We Are Limerick. I'm your host, Keen Reinhardt, and I'm joined today by author Dan Mooney. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Keen. In the last few years, we've been lucky enough to, the last two years, we've been lucky enough to see two books from you. Uh, where did this journey of writing begin? Um, the journey for the, the, for the last two years started about in, in 2010, because that's when I started writing Me, Myself and Them, which was published in uh, in 2017. But I, but the journey for writing kind of started when I was like tiny. Um, I, I think I was ten years old. I wrote a, a story for a kids-run newspaper in Partine, which Eva Ferguson had started. We called it the Partine Screamer, and I wrote a, a fictional piece that was kind of historical fiction about Tutankhamun, who I just learned about that day, and I thought this was the coolest thing ever. So, uh, you know, ten years old, I started writing. Um, and and in one form or other, I've been doing that ever since. So you know, through, through school and through college, it's all essays, and 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 I liked doing those because I liked writing. And then after um, after college, it was blogs and um, little bits of jokey, funny screenplays that I do with with pals of mine that were you know never intended to be anything, but but I liked doing them because I liked writing. And uh, eventually, I, I had eventually had to. To kind of surrender to myself and, and sit down and start writing properly and, and getting it. So that was two thousand and ten, um, and I had just finished this um, this project I'd been doing where I was doing one new thing every day for a year and a day, and I was blogging about it as I was going. And when that was finished, I had because I blogged about it as I was going, I had kind of developed a discipline for writing every day and for for well, most days. Or some days I'd bunk off, but um, I developed the discipline for writing, and so I. I decided I'd, I should use that and um, then I sat down I had an idea for a story and I sat down and I started to work on it and and that was 2010 it took me six years to, to finish it I, the first draft of it finished in about nine months nine to ten months um, but it was terrible like really really awful and I thought it was really really good so I was trying to get agents and publishers for it not realising it was just really terrible so I took a couple of months away from it and came back to it and started, you know, that's when I realized it was bad and started trying to fix it. And over the next kind of five years after that, I, I tweaked it and toyed around with it and played around with it and then decided, um, said, yeah, you know, it's it's done. I'm going to I'm gonna self-publish it. And uh, I did. But at the same time I self-published it, I submitted it for a couple of competitions, more in hope than in any actual confidence of, of winning and uh, and it won which was uh, which was amazing and that kind of kicked the whole thing off this was the Luke Bitmead yeah, yeah. the Luke Bitmead bursary award it's a legend press um, legend, Luke Bitmead was legend press's first signed author when they opened up as an independent publisher and uh, Luke tragically killed himself uh, about two years after that and so they started a, a, an award in his honour so a lot of the books would have been focusing on mental health, which you know that that's um, that's what me myself and them kind of one of the strong themes running through it is is that mental health thing. Um, now it was so funny that at, a, at the time that I wrote it and I started writing it, mental health wasn't the buzzword that it has become since then. 
It was a bit of a taboo, I'd imagine, when people didn't really speak yeah. about it. You know? Not not quite taboo, but but you you know you were just starting to get people sticking their heads above the parapet and starting to talk about it. Um, it you know it was it was taboo would be going too far. It just wasn't talked about. Like you know it, it wasn't off limits. Just everyone had kind of quietly agreed, we're not going to discuss this, we're not going to mention it, we're all going to continue as if this is, you know, nothing's happening. It it was never off limits to talk about, but but we had never, I think, developed the, the, the tools, the social and, and mental and emotional tools to be able to discuss it with each other. Is that is that why you chose to write a book on that topic? I, well, I chose because yeah, I had my own uh, struggles with mental health. I don't, I don't want to get too much into that because that just seems to be everyone. I mean, everyone has that. Everyone's yeah. gone through it, so there's not, nothing particularly special about, about that. But um, the, the idea that men in particular suffer in silence and and don't talk and don't reach out that's what the that's what the idea of the book was and that's why those i mean he's he's living with four monsters and that's what they are they're they're his inability to to discuss his own mental health problems with the outside world so that was it was more that than than anything else because it is a particularly mental health is everyone's problem but but the suicide rate is is men's problem um and that's uh, something i was looking at and the, the four monsters in the book, they actually seem really physical while you're reading it. Yeah. So it's really real to him. And is that something that you wanted to convey in the book, that this is something people live with every day? Yeah, the, the idea... You're doing two things, really. I mean, the, the, the story with the, the mental health aspect of the story is, is thematic. So it's not something that should be... It's not something you forefront or you foreground. The the characters are what you foreground. Your story should always be characters and plot. That's that's they should be at the forefront. And the themes are what happens when that plot and those characters interact with each other. Um so I wanted them to be instantly recognizable as monsters. So they had to be monstrous and terrible. And then I wanted the reader to uh then even though you know that they're monsters, uh believe in them. Like start to find them relatable as characters and start to start to forget that they're monsters, if you like, and start to address them as if they were uh, regular characters in the story. And that was kind of the, the challenge there was to was to bring you so close to them that you that you think that they're real, that they're concrete rather than just aspects of of Dennis's personality. So there's one part in it where uh, Dennis's colleague visits from work. And the monsters hide. Yeah. So is this him putting on a face for? That's the idea. Yeah. yeah that's the ver- That's the exact idea. The reason that they don't show themselves to any other character, you know, is is because Dennis doesn't show that to anyone else. It's not. It's not supposed to be visible. It's what you're supposed to get from Dennis is is polite, courteous, uh, um, you know, borderline friendly, but not not so friendly as to invite actual conversation. Uh, and that's it. That's all you're supposed to get from him. The others, those monsters, all represent some part of his personality he doesn't want anyone else to see. So yeah, that's um, that's that's on the money. And then um, the Luke Bitmead bursary, you were you won that, and then the Great Unexpected was nominated for not the Booker Prize. Yeah. As an author or a creative, uh, what does it mean to have these nominations or prizes? Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> you get 
Okay, so somebody had uh, a friend of mine had, had tweeted the other day about uh, the idea that um, if you had a room of five hundred people in it and, and and they all read something that you'd written and four hundred and ninety nine of them said, "Oh, it's great! It's it's really good." You'd have that. Oh, okay, that's brilliant. And then one of them would go, "No, I thought it was terrible," and that would literally undo the four hundred and ninety nine. You'd be like, "Yeah, no, you're right. It's awful. It's terrible." So the, you take so much of that criticism which is awful I mean it's a terrible terrible mindset 499 people out of a room of 500 like what you've written one person says no I thought it was terrible and that's all you can hear you don't hear the the 499 compliments you just hear that one um, so when you get stuff like that it, it's, a, it's a very very uncertain process writing it's a very very you, you, you kind of veer from egomaniacal narcissism to, to this crippling self-doubt and somewhere along the way, when you're trying to get out of that self-doubt thing, the Luke Bitmead Bursary Award and nomination for Not the Booker Prize reminds you that you're not a fraud. Mm. It's, it's just, uh, okay, all right, so ground yourself a little, okay, this is good. This, you're not terrible, it's okay, just sit down and keep writing. So um, they're useful. Uh, if, I mean, if you're winning awards, you, you're selling books, which is, you know, that's a big, big thing. But... Uh, in terms of, of personally speaking, the, they're useful tools to, to remind yourself that you know, you're, not, you're not as terrible as you think you are at writing, you know? So you mentioned there that it motivates you to sit down and write, but uh, creativity isn't something that you can force. Um, oh, Watch, your, me. <laughs> Watch me. Watch <laughs> me. What's your uh, writing process? Cause I know a lot of people lock themselves away or else they can do it in a coffee shop or something, you know? Do you, do you have any... Yeah, I, I need what I the only thing that I need for, for absolute certain is that I need about four hours, four to five hours in a block. Um sometimes I need quiet. Uh sometimes I like to sit down in a coffee shop or even in a bar and and bring my laptop with me and and do some work there. That that's a mood thing, that's depending on what kind of form I'm in. But what I definitely always need is is four to five hours of a block because my brain takes about an hour to spool up. So for the first hour, it's real plodding along stuff like, you know, half typing and half thinking and half typing. But after that, I kind of start to get into a bit of a flow. And so if I have those four hours or so, four to five hours, I can knock out about four to 5,000 words. But if I don't, I'm trying to do it an hour or two at a time, uh, it becomes you get no flow for starters that creativity that doesn't happen uh, and so I might get some words written but they'll be terrible and then the next time I sit down to write it, it's the same I, and so everything then when I, as I read it back it, it just reads very staccato it reads like it's you just jamming stuff in there instead of instead of flowing mm-hmm. so yeah I, I need those four or five hours um, all the time where I do it is, is I mean, I have a lovely, Christine, uh, my fiancé, bought me a lovely uh, desk to write in as a, a gift for the publication date for me, myself and them. So our spare room in our house is, is my office, if you like. Um, it's a spare bed there for guests or the cat who kind of <laughs> thinks it's his bed. Um, and, and my desk to sit down and write at, which is... That's ideal, like that's a good space to do it in. But sometimes that's not what I want. Sometimes I, I, I want people or I want a bit of energy around me, so I'll go somewhere else. But the one common thing is, oh, and the time of day is, is whatever. 
sometimes it's five in the morning sometimes it's two in the afternoon it, it could literally be anything like uh, but but i need that time i need that block of time together and uh, you mentioned four or five hours but uh as our arts editor here in the Limerick post uh, rose rush has been telling me all morning uh an author is just one of your hats uh, and <laughs> you squeeze in the time you're uh, a film uh, screenwriter occasionally commentate on the rugby do uh, you control some airspace here in near Limerick and Shannon. Well, I, I <laughs> along with along with lots of other colleagues, along with many many other people. Yes, um, it's not that's not a solo run. Um, Do you ever find it hard to make time to sit down and write? The fun thing about my job is that I, mean, I love shift work. I really, really love it. Um, it doesn't suit many people, but as a writer, does it? It's just it's just perfect. It's a one, um, and and I, particularly the way our roster goes. Um, allows me space and allows me time to to get stuff done which is which is great and the nature of air traffic control is if you're when you're plugging out at the end of your shift that's it you can't control airplanes at home you can't take this with you you know so the second you've you've given your hand over to the next controller coming on and plugged out you're done mm-hmm. so an awful lot of people take a lot of their work home I know but you know even as a journalist you, when I was a journalist you sit at home if someone phones you up with a with, with something, you know you have to analyze that, and you might have to bang out a few words of copy, or you have to chase up something if someone phones you, or you know you, if you if it's five o'clock in the evening and you haven't got all of your work done, you'll you'll bring the laptop home and you'll you'll do some at home. Teachers have an amount of work to do at home. It's really really quite unfair uh, how much work teachers have to bring home with them and do at home. Um, but as an air traffic controller, you don't. So I, as I say, the shift work suits me, but also the nature of the job suits me because once I've plugged out, I can't take it home. So all of my at-home time is my own. It's not, it's like not like so many other people who have work to do at home. I don't. I've, I, you can't control planes from home if you wanted to. So when I get home, all of my home time is is my own, and that means that where other people have you know 40 hour working week and then add on whatever else they have to get done at home or whatever other bits and pieces i don't every other spare minute of the day is my own so so you're not sitting down playing a flight simulator (laughs) (laughs) no i i there's a term used for for um for certain types of air traffic controller of which i'm one aerosexual which is refers to to controllers who are obsessed with airplanes and air traffic control and all of that kind of stuff. So you can tell that the difference between the aerosexuals and the not aerosexuals by the uh, what type of airplane is that? And the aerosexuals, oh yeah, that's a Boeing seven seven two or a Boeing seven four two, and you can tell because of the fairings on the wings, or you can tell because of the lack of windows <laughs> in the second deck, and then the non aerosexuals. The question: What type of airplane is that? A white one. <laughs> and so how much interest you take in the job outside of the job is uh, is determined and while i'm not quite at flight simulator uh, stage or air traffic control simulator stage i i do have a kind of a, a weird interest in the job outside of the job but it's not work it's you know it's fun but uh, yeah i do fall into the category of aerosexual sadly <laughs> maybe when you take some time off you'll find yourself getting withdrawals that's where flight simulator will come in <laughs> <laughs> i can't see it but maybe <laughs> so uh in limerick uh, you're involved in a, a writers group yeah yeah uh, what's the support like with that it's amazing right pace is uh, it's brilliant um i think there's a nice mix of 
of experience levels there, which is which is ideal, you know. Um, and we've had kind of guests drop in and out as well over across the time, um, which is which is also brilliant. It I when I when I joined Right Pace, I had just self published, me myself and them. And Sarah Moore Fitzgerald had started the whole thing off, I and mean, she has already got four books out, fifth on the way. Um, she's a lecturer in creative writing out in New Wales. She's a brilliant person. She's a kind, lovely person, and uh, she had invited me in to to join the group. And there was, I think, there was six of us at the time. Um, and then by where we to where we are now, um, we, we're we're now there's about twelve. 13 of us there um, I've gone from being the, the the kid who had his self-published book to, to being kind of one of the experienced heads because I have two books published but we have a big age profile so there's younger people and there's older people and it's a nice mix of energy and it's a nice mix of experience and um, we're at different stages of our writing careers as well I mean you look at Sarah and Professor Owen Devereaux very accomplished um, celebrated even um, and then there's other writers who are still trying to break in there and there's writers with degrees and masters in creative writing and so it's great it's it's brilliant and that it, it, as a kind of a place to go and sit down with other people to get some work done it, my main takeaway from it is because because if we won't I don't get the, the four or five hours that I need to get real writing done at the right pace group because we're meeting for two, two and a half, maybe three hours, depending. And um, But what I get out of it, which I absolutely love, is the tremendous energy and the enthusiasm from everyone else. You can always leave right pace, like buzzing to, to write and, and ready to, to, okay, that's just give me a space. Give me somewhere I can sit down and I'll get this done because that energy is kind of contagious. Uh, traditionally, uh, fictional authors would, would work on their own, but... Uh put in that mix is it yeah um i think that i don't i don't think anyone's getting any massive work done because writing is very solitary it's something you do on your own there's no there's no avoiding that there's no escaping that even even if you're doing collaborative stuff even if you're working with someone else on something um you you at the end of the day you both can't type the words out only one of you can so that when you're doing that it is very very solitary but I think that what everyone gets at a right pace I mean the great unexpected when I was working on the great unexpected I had Joel and Frank stuck in the nursing home and I needed them out and I was sitting looking at my laptop and it was a problem that I'd been wrestling with and so Sarah had said what, like, what, what's everyone working on and she goes around the room and everyone talks about it and got to me and I said yeah I've got a real problem I'm kind of stuck here and I, I, I told them what the problem was and Bob Burke who wrote the Harry Pig detective series Bob Burke threw out a suggestion for how to solve that and Sarah Morphus Gerald threw out a suggestion and I looked I was like this is great and suddenly I had ideas coming at me and that was starting to re-engage me and um, so you know while, while you're not getting a huge amount of, of words down what you're getting is a lot of help in terms of getting your head, you know, suggestions for for plot fixes as well as getting your creative energy going. And then you take it home and do the solitary bit where you where you write on your own, which you just is just unavoidable. Every writer has to do it on their own. But that room 
prepares you for it and gives you the energy to do it and, and the enthusiasm and the encouragement. It's great. And, uh, how can people get involved with uh, MyPace? Well, I think we're full up because we literally don't have any more space to put people in the room. Um, there would be nowhere else <laughs> for anyone to go, but I can't recommend enough uh, finding or starting a writer's group. Mm-hmm. If people want to you know, throw it out there onto, onto Twitter, onto to boards or, or Reddit or whatever your, your thing is and, and put the word out and say, look, I, I want to start a writer's group. This thing is, I feel like this is good. And, uh, and then try to, we've been very lucky that all the people who've come into Right Place and all the people who are involved in it have, are, are, are very positive people mm-hmm. and the energy is quite good. So you have to kind of then hope that, now I have to assume that most pe- anyone who wants to be in a writers group is probably going to be pretty positive anyway. So if you throw the word out and say, "Look, I want to want to get started," people, I think the people that you're going to get are going to be generally positive. But I cannot recommend it enough as a as a way to 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 get your creative energy moving. You know. And uh, how does uh, writing your fiction novels compare to screenwriting? Two two very different animals. Um, screenwriting is they say about a page is about a minute of screen time so if you want to sit down and write a feature and I've I think I have four features written now at this stage um, none of them have ever gone anywhere but I but I wrote them um, you feature movie feature and movies about somewhere between 90 and, and, and 120 minutes so uh, let's split the difference and call it a hundred minutes or a hundred and five. All right, hundred and five pages is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It, it, it's so little. And then if you see the way screenplays are laid out, like a lot of that's dead space. This isn't a hundred and five full up pages as you would have with a novel. This is a lot of it's dead space. So you're so constricted with with screenplays. Everything has to be. Like there's no wasted words, no, no wasted time. You don't have it. You've got 105 minutes to tell a full story, and get it all done, in in that one go. So it becomes this thing of cutting, 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 and slicing it up. And is that word necessary? Is that entire sentence necessary? Can I replace that entire sentence and say the exact same thing with one word? And so you're trying to find that all the time. So it's always cutting and cutting and trying to condense it. And the mass, the masses, uh, the, the biggest amount of information you can convey in the smallest amount of words. And you sit down to write a novel and it's whatever you want. It's absolutely literally endless, infinite options for what you can say and what you can't say and what you want to and what you don't want to say. It is infinite. So... That, that can be quite overwhelming trying to switch from one to the other because if you're doing the novel first and then you're sitting down to write the, the screenplay you're bringing too many words to the page if you're doing it the other way you sit down to try to write your novel and, and, and the, the, the endless infinite possibilities for the words you can use becomes quite intimidating because all of a sudden Ooh, I have no idea where, I, where to go and what I can do with this um, and I love them both in, in very, very different ways. Um, the novels have been very good to me in terms of you know publication deals and The Great Unexpected is going to be translated into three different languages now and that that's all very positive stuff. None of my screenplays, bar one, which is The Apparel, 
which was used in the City of Culture in 2014. That received a bursary as well, didn't it? No, it didn't. Yeah. Um, there was a small amount of money, training money left over, and that money was about 15 grand. And that money, it was determined that the best training that could have been done was making. So the 15 grand was divvied up into three films, given a budget of about five grand each. And Jerry Stembridge came in and mentored three writers, me included. And this was before The Great Unexpected, before me, myself and them was even self-published. So this was, you know, really big boon for me to be included as, as you know, mentorship with Jerry Stembridge. Like, he's, he's a fantastic writer and, and a celebrated writer, rightly so. Um, so yeah, he came in and mentored with three of us, and uh, and those three films were made. They were, I think, were screened on RTE. They were on. I know the apparel was on an Aer Lingus flight, and I know that because of someone, a friend of mine, um, watched it and sent a text when they landed in the states. Going, did I just watch a movie you wrote? <laughs> uh, which is which is really cool. Like I was, you know, that was that was a nice thing to have. Uh, but yeah, the apparel is the only one of the of the screen, and that was a short. Uh, it's the only one of the screenplays that I've ever written that I ever... mean it had success transatlantic I, I'm, I'm <laughs> telling people that I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to fly but um, pardon the pun but uh, yeah I, I, that's what I'm telling people and, uh, the characters in your books are fairly complex they're going through a lot so how does it compare writing a character for screen to um, it, it depends on the kind of, of movie you're writing Um I I have a, a beautiful idea for a, a really really good idea for a rom com that I want to write, um, and which by the way thanks for that. And like normally when I say that to people, I get this like facial expression, <laughs> like, what? And I can't tell if it's because they don't like rom coms or if it's because they can't see me writing a rom com. The listeners but, can't see my face. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I have this idea for a rom com, and I and I love it. I think it's great because uh, I like rom coms. Um, but but you're not getting into overly complex you know, no you I mean you you still have to have an emotional core and and uh, a, a core to the character an identity to the character that that has to be explored and that's in every film um, so you, you have to touch on that to to one extent or another but the the amount that you do depends on the type of film you're writing so if for example I was writing a screenplay version of me myself and them. Um, the same process in terms of developing the complexity of the character and in terms of revealing the complexity of the character to a, to a viewer uh, would be going on. Whereas with a rom-com, it's a little bit less. You don't need to... You, you can kind of slap him in the face with the with the identity of the character and because it's a rom-com and people you know expect what they're expecting and they're happy with with watching certain elements. Now, that's not to say that you should be doing the same thing that everyone else does, but there is a certain expectation in terms of how certain films go, which will give you license to, to do things a certain way. You should still always, I think, always try to, to be different from what came before and what's going to come after, and uh, and the manner that you do that is, is entirely is your art. That's, the, that's what separates one artist from another artist, you know? So I, I was grabbing a coffee this morning before we met and uh, I was talking to someone about this podcast and he said, one guest you should get on is Dan Mooney. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you might remember him, his name is Tommy Wells, he's a, he's a chef, I told him I'll, I'll give him a mention here. I, you know? I know Tommy, I know yeah. Tommy quite well. Uh, so he says it's your, 
very good advocate for Limerick. You're lim- Limerick to the bone. Yeah. You know? uh, but you've lived away from Limerick before. I lived in, uh, not, not very far. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in Dublin for a year when I was working in Newstalk, um, back when I was a journalist. And I lived in Galway for a year um, just to see what all the fuss was about. Um, what was the fuss? Yeah, it's no Limerick, like. Um, it rains more. Yeah, Galway are excellent at PR, right? Superb PR people in Galway. It rains more in Galway than it does in Limerick. And I was getting absolutely drowned at one day uh, on my way back to the house that I was living in. And uh, I looked it up, and statistically, it rains more in Galway. I think Galway is the wettest county in in Ireland, so it rains more in Galway City than it does in in Limerick. And yet, if you asked anyone around the whole country, what's the wettest city in Ireland? The the answer would be Limerick, right? So we can thank Angela's Ashes for that, <laughs> for giving us buckets of rain in a movie. And Galway's excellent PR is that, you know, no, no one ever associates constant driving rain with Galway, uh, even though they should. Um, so that was the first That was the first thing. Now, there is um, a very centralised population there, and that contributes to a wonderful atmosphere around the town. Um, and that's, that's something that I, you know, you couldn't deny them that, that's... There is a good buzz around there, and there's a real energy around the place. But um, I kind of, yeah, I don't want to use the word soulless. Um, that's the closest um, that I'm that I'm thinking. Um, it was no, it, it seemed very inauthentic. Is how I'll describe it. It didn't. It, there was nothing very authentic feeling about the middle of Galway. The energy was there, and the buzz is there, and that's great. And it's really enjoyable. And, you know, to, if you're walking around in Galway in an afternoon, even on a really crappy afternoon, to, to, you know, you still feel that, that busy, bustling city vibe uh, because of that centralised population. But it doesn't seem very authentic. There's, there's something kind of gift choppy about the whole place. Um, I wasn't... Uh, I'd made a couple of friends up there and I was sad to leave them behind, a couple of people that I, that I knew... Uh, but I wasn't sad to leave Galway City behind and come back down home. It was, uh, was kind of uh, very happy to be doing that, actually, to be honest. Uh, the, the mood in Limerick has changed a lot as well. Yeah, um, it's a huge, it's a massive, massive change. Uh, I mean, somebody shared on, the Rubber Bandits shared the other day that you know, it was 10 years ago, uh, we were had, we had headlines like Murder Capital of Europe and... And that kind of stuff, and that's that's drastically, drastically changed. Um, you know, fair play to to uh, the powers that be and the Guardian and everyone else for for getting that kind of knocked on its head. Um, but we've 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 gone further than that. I think in terms of it's not just that the crime problem has gone away. We've seen a massive uptake in civic involvement in how the city runs. So people wanting to be involved, you know, it's been a process for the council for as long as I can remember that if, if there's any major public works, everyone gets their say. So everyone gets to, you know, and prior to this is maybe the last couple of years, the only people who objected were, were vested interests and 
have various organizations and that kind of whereas now we have a situation with public consultation everyone's getting their spoken and that's brilliant it's we're, we're seeing this massive uptake in great conversation as yeah well. yeah and and people starting to have debates about about how we want the city to be and kind of massive rows about the pedestrianization of o'connell street and you know people are real disappointed that it wasn't fully pedestrianized and i honestly just felt the whole thought that i was like i'm like I don't know how I feel about that, about the pedestrianisation of the not pedestrian. I haven't thought about it, but I'm really, really glad to see people taking, like, people getting so worked up about this because they care so much that, that, that they're, they're passionately arguing with other people about how to better our city. Like, here's two people having a row about how we can make Limerick City better, and that's brilliant. Like, I love that. It's... That uptake in, in, in civic involvement is, is huge um, and I think it's going to really stand to us uh, in years to come and it's being led a lot by kind of a new, there's, there's one or two new faces in council and in local politics and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming a kind of a driving force in getting people motivated to, to, to talk and getting people motivated to discuss these things and that's great. Um, and I don't know what kind of direction we're going. I'd love if we had a coherent, goal-driven art strategy, like something that five-year kind of style. Uh, every year we'll have a certain amount for short-term projects. Every year a certain amount for, for creative first-timers, whether they're first-timers in in writing or in acting or in, in visual arts or street performance or music or theatre whatever it might be um, a certain amount of money for first timers and then kind of a little bit more money for mid term mid range projects larger projects that, that you can get done in a year but with an ultimate goal that, that there's money being put away for a big big project something huge for the city every three but years we see other cities do it yeah yeah and and, and others I'm, like, I don't know uh, for sure, if they have or not, I, but I have to assume that that other cities have coherent, uh, broad, broadly uh, um, negotiated and 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 well thought out arts strategies, not just arts plans and not just an arts office and not just here's a bit of money now and here's a bit of money then and uh, have you got anything going on at the moment? Do you need any? Okay, great. Well, here we can give you. I'm talking about a f- like a four or five year plan that's been negotiated with the artists, that's been negotiated with the council, that that makes use of public spaces, that that in that involves people within the arts community and tries to bring in other people. Um, I get this this thing all the time about people telling me there's nothing on in Limerick, and I'm like, yeah, there is. Well, where where is it advertised? I don't, uh, you're you know, I don't see anyone talking about it. I'm like guys. We're not trying to keep it a secret. This is not something we're trying to keep from you. Like, don't tell me we're not telling you about it. I can assure you we're telling you. I'm telling absolutely everyone this is not a conspiracy. If you haven't seen it, I mean, I don't know why that is. You're not looking hard but, enough. But, but maybe you're not looking hard enough. Um, so, yeah, we, we end up in this situation where, where we could have a much higher involvement in the arts in Limerick, whether that's through um, the Writers' Festival, the Limerick uh, Literary Festival that's coming up, or 
through um, writers groups like Right Pace. Um, that's just in terms of writing, in terms of theatre, uh, bigger crowds turning up in, in the bell table and in the gaff and in the lime tree and in the university concert hall. I mean, we were four smashing uh, venues for theatre there, you know. So um, it's getting people to support them. Yeah, it's getting people in the door and, and, and a, a, a big arts strategy would would be brilliant to see in terms of of getting you know how how do we get how do we reach those people who are telling me constantly that there's nothing on and that they're not seeing it and how do we get them involved whether as audience or or as artists or participating with the artists you know I'd love to see it outside of that I I can't I don't really know where where the infrastructure wise where the city is going or or development wise where it's going but I'm I'm very bizarrely optimistic about it because of the amount of interaction that I'm seeing people having civically is civic engagement with this entire process so I I think I, that kind of energy is um, is going to bring us I hope in the right direction so that's your uh, hopes for Limerick's future uh, what about yourself are you working on anything uh, I got I get the first time in a long time I got a, a, a PFO um, recently for a work that I'm uh, my third novel it's not finished so it's very nearly finished it's first draft it should be done in the next kind of three or four weeks um, but there was some interest um, drummed up in it already and I had a, an email from an editor asking can I have a look at what you've got so <laughs> as I say you pivot from egomaniacal narcissism to, to the crippling self-doubt so when I was in one of these egomaniacal narcissism phases I sent him what I had and I was there, that's it. He's going to buy it. He's going to, this is it. This is the big one. And um, about eight, nine weeks later, which was the other day, I got an email going, look, it's not really for me. Thanks. Anyway, um, I'm very polite about it and very nice. And and I'm at the stage of my writing career now where you actually get the thanks but no thanks emails. At the start, you just didn't. Nobody even replied to you. No, No one ever heard of you, so they don't care. Um, so I'm hoping that that third one is gonna is going to eventually find a home. Uh, at the moment, there's no home for it. Um, uh, Legend haven't asked for it. Legend have published my last two. They haven't asked for it. Um, it may turn out that nobody wants it. Uh, in which case, nobody wants it. Would you self publish again? I think about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I have so many ideas for books and so many ideas for stories and for. Um, screenplays for you know like rom-coms and I've uh, I've a couple of Irish kind of gangster ones and you know the crime ones and suspense ones and so all of these ideas for stuff um I'm, I'm not short of that so wherever I I um wherever I go next I, I it'll, I'll be writing something but I, I won't lose any tremendous amount of sleep if nobody wants the third novel there will be a third novel at some point I'll write something um, but uh, I, you know, I just keep going, and I, I'm I'm very very lucky in the sense that I, my job affords me the opportunity to do that. And I know that there are other writers who just have to, you know, they have to be getting deals, and they have to. I I have the luxury of being able to go. Well, if no one wants it, that's fine. But I would hope that you know, to me myself and them published here it was launched in the U.S. in hardback. I'm delighted with that. The Great Unexpected was launched here. It'll be out in the States in June. Next year, it'll be translated into three languages. You're hoping that that kind of momentum 
and that kind of energy uh, knocks you over the line in terms of getting deals and, and getting mm-hmm. people interested but uh, you know it's um it's a very difficult game to be in and it's a very difficult to game to negotiate because you know you could write something and, and maybe nobody wants it and like it's taken me just over a year now uh, and I still haven't finished the first draft so this is the the longest book I've ever worked on because the first draft of me myself and them while it took me six years to write the thing to get it published it took me nine months to write the first draft this has taken me over a year and I still haven't got a first draft yet so uh, it's real it's a real chore um I hope it'll it'll go somewhere, but if it doesn't, um, another one will because I will keep writing and I'll keep going, and it'll be a screenplay or a novel or a, a play or something. But uh, I, I, David Eddings was one of my favourite uh, writers when I was growing up. Uh, Eddings said, uh, you know, it's just a little bit of blurb about himself on the inside cover of the books, and um, he, I think, they something along the lines of he'll be writing until they nail his coffin shut and and I, I feel like that's probably going to be the, the the same for me regardless of whether there's anyone buying or not I, I can't stop now so I'll just keep writing and keep writing uh, to wrap up uh, where can people keep up to date with you? Um, <laughs> I was going to recommend my Twitter page for a second but uh, most of that's trash to be quite honest <laughs> <laughs> um I, I mean the danmooneyauthor.com uh, website uh, which I, I should do better to update I mean I was blogging on it for a while and, and that was good but I haven't actually updated it in a while I have the, the Dan Mooney Author Facebook page which I do a little bit more updating on and I have my own Twitter uh, which is da- at Daniel Moonbags um, somewhere between the three of those you'll get whatever it is <laughs> That you might be looking for. Um, there's contact details on, on the website and uh, I think my DMs are open on, on Twitter and that kind of stuff for people who want to, to reach out with things. But uh, yeah, keeping up to date is, uh, is is pretty straightforward. You know, it's one of those three. I'm a terror for, for not doing enough publicity and not doing enough... Um, I, I should be shouting more of this stuff from the rooftops and I'm not... Um, but that's because I'm trying to make really glib jokes on Twitter. You know, that's, where, that's where all my energy has gone, being glib on Twitter. Um, but yeah, that's the, those would be the best three, either the, the Dan Mooney Author Facebook page or the DanMooneyAuthor.com or... For glib jokes, it's Daniel Moonbags. Yeah, Twitter. that's it. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Daniel. That's okay, thank you. You've been listening to We Are Limerick, a Limerick Post podcast. For more news, sport, entertainment and more podcasts, visit limerickpost.ie.